I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting my show. HR manager salaries average $70,000 a year. Only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. Get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com gold. That's spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. Early this morning, we saw a big spike in long-term interest rates. The yield on the 10-year treasury got all the way up to 1.435%. Now, of course, by all the way up, I'm keeping it in perspective. It's just the highest it's been since the pandemic collapsed about a year ago. But it has been a relentless move higher. I've been talking about it on this podcast. The chart looks extremely bearish for bonds and bullish for bond yields. I really don't see anything other than a massive increase in the Fed's QE program that's going to derail this freight train. In fact, on the 30-year bond, the yield got all the way up to 2.293%. So almost 2.3% on the 30-year bond yield. And when the yield initially spiked, that sent gold prices tanking. All of a sudden, gold was down about 20 bucks very quickly. That was the knee-jerk response in the precious metals market to the surge in bond yields. Again, as I've been saying on the podcast, this is because Wall Street traders are convinced that rising bond yields means the economy is really strong. And because the economy is really strong, the Fed is going to raise rates sooner rather than later. And a premature tightening is going to push up the dollar and a strong dollar is going to be bearish for gold. So every time they see a spike in bond yields, they sell gold. Now, of course, they're completely wrong in their assessment of the situation. Bond yields are not spiking because the economy is strong. Bond yields are spiking because of inflation. Bond yields are going up because there's a massive supply of bonds, because we have massive deficits. And even though the Fed is buying a lot of bonds, they ain't buying enough. And so those extra bonds, you know, there's no buyer. And so the price keeps falling. Real yields are negative. There is no demand for negative yielding U.S. Treasuries anymore. Nobody wants them as a safe haven. And if you look at a chart, there is nothing but air. There's nothing to stop the yields from going to 3%. 4%, 5%. Fundamentally, they should be much higher than that. Now, of course, if they go anywhere near that level, the whole house of cards that was built on a foundation of low interest rates is going to collapse. And the Fed knows this. I don't understand why the market doesn't know it yet. But as a matter of fact, what stopped the sell-off in the bond market. And of course, the stock market initially sold off. So early this morning, before the open, when bond yields started to spike, the stock market started to tank. The Dow futures went from positive to negative. And in fact, they even opened down and they were down uh, when Powell began the second day of his two-day testimony. But the statements that really turned the market around because the Dow closed up 424 points. We actually traded above 32,000 for the first time ever. That was a record high. Today is a record close. Now the Dow is the only index that closed in record territory and it was the biggest gainer because it has the highest concentration of value stocks and the transition from growth to value continues. And believe me, this transition is in its infancy. It's got many, many years to go. So we're very early in this in this sea change in the investment landscape. It's just that so many people don't understand it. And the average American, the only names they know are the growth stocks. They don't know any of the value stocks because they haven't been on their radar in a decade. So the only stocks the average American knows about are the ones that are going to be underperforming. The stocks that we own Uh, and that we continue to buy are the ones that are going to do really well. But what stopped the uh, rising bond yields? Although bond yields still closed positive on the day, bonds were still down. So we closed at just under 1.39 on the the 10-year, and the 30-year closed at 2.242. 
So these are still big jumps from the prior day, just well off the intraday high, thanks to uh, some timely comments by um, Jerome Powell. And also, I think another Fed governor chimed in with similar comments. But this is what uh, Powell said. And this was early in today's testimony. And I'm going to spend a lot of this podcast going over what Powell said to Congress. Yesterday, he was in front of the U.S. Senate. And today, it was the House of Representatives. Of course, all of it uh, was virtual. But I am going to go over uh, the lowlights of the testimony. And again, every time Powell speaks, he becomes progressively more dovish. And that's because each time he speaks, the U.S. economy is more addicted and more dependent on the cheap money that the Fed is supplying. So he has to be more dovish. But the early statement was on inflation. And this is what Powell said. He said that he wanted to be honest about the challenge that was facing the Fed on getting inflation up to 2%, right? Because that is the Fed's goal. They've got this mission. They want to get 2% inflation because 2% inflation is great. That's like nirvana. That's like the economic promised land. And he's Moses and he's promising that no matter how long it takes, he'll get us to the promised land of 2% inflation. Now, of course, why 2% inflation is better than 1% inflation? Of course, the Fed can't explain that. Why 2% inflation is good at all? Why wouldn't it be better if prices were going down instead of going up? But forget about that. I don't have time to discuss that on this podcast. But Powell, again, is saying, I will get you to 2%. But it's a challenge. It's going to take a long time, right? And Powell says he thinks it may take as many as three years, if not more, before we get inflation above 2%. And so that is when the Fed is going to tighten policy. That is when the Fed might taper its bond buying program. So the Fed is telling the market, don't worry about rising bond yields. We ain't changing our policy. We're not going to raise interest rates. We're not going to taper our QE program for like three more years. Because according to Powell and other people at the Fed, it's going to take three more years to get annual CPI to be going up at 2% a year, which is laughable because it should already be going up more than that right now. And it certainly would be if it was measured honestly, but it probably is anyway. Now, after this statement came out, we saw the bond market get a bid. So yields started to come down and that took some of the pressure off of the stock market, and we got this explosive rally. Now, we also got a rally, I wouldn't call it an explosive rally, in gold stocks. So the GDX did manage a slight gain on the day, up about 80 basis points. GDXJ, which again is the junior miners, up 1.6%, so about twice the move. But we still barely managed to get back to unchange on the price of gold. In fact, gold settled down about three bucks, 1803. So at least it's still above $1,800. Silver, though, had a much better day. Again, because silver is more of an industrial metal as well. So silver was up about a dime or so. Just under $28 an ounce is where we end up closing on, on silver. But the story was very different if you look at other commodities, particularly industrial commodities. Look at copper. Copper surged another 3% today. We closed up 13 cents a pound. We're now at almost $4.32 a pound for copper. We are less than 20 cents away from a new all-time record high in the price of copper. Grains strong pretty much across the board. One, 2% moves up there. Look at oil. I have been talking almost daily on this podcast. Oil up another $1.76 today. I don't know if it's settled yet. I'm looking at $63.43 a barrel for oil. We have oil prices surging. We have agricultural commodities surging. We got beans in the teens. And you know what? They won't be in the teens for long because I think they're going to go into the 20s, right? And so they're going to be out of the teens, which has never happened, I don't think, in beans. 
Uh, but you got agriculture, you got energy, you got industrial metals. In fact, platinum was up better than 2% again today. I guess people aren't paying attention to that market, so it keeps on rising. It's just the gold and silver market. For some reason, people are still thinking that rising interest rates are bad for gold and silver, but they're bullish for everything else. But the reality is they're not. They're more bullish for gold and silver than any of these other commodities because what the market still doesn't get despite everything that Powell has been saying. And I'm going to go over again the testimony from yesterday and today, which the market should be able to figure this out based on what the Fed is saying. I mean, they're not being secretive about uh, about their points, but the Fed is not going to raise rates or shrink its balance sheet or taper its bond purchases in response to rising long-term interest rates. That may have been what the Fed did in the past, but it ain't going to do it again in the future because it can't. In fact, here is the reality that nobody wants to acknowledge. As interest rates are moving up, rather than raising rates and uh, reducing the size of its QE program, it is going to increase the size of its QE program. Now, it can't cut rates because they're already at zero. I don't know that they're going to go negative, but they will increase QE because that's the only way that the Fed can stop interest rates from rising. And at some point, they're going to have to do that because there is going to be a point where these rising bond yields become a big problem for the U.S. stock market if the rise continues. I think right now there's some complacency out there that interest rates are going up, but they're going to stop going up. Why would they stop? I mean, there's no technical reason that rates should rise. Look at a chart. I mean, it's. You, I mean, rates are going to go way up, and they could go up very fast. I don't even know what's going to stop it. But then if you look at the fundamentals of the bond market, again, it's all supply and demand. We have got more debt than ever before, and we're going to create even more of it, right? We're about to pass this $1.9 trillion uh, spending bill. So the Treasury is selling record and unprecedented amounts of negative yielding bonds. Now, yes, the Federal Reserve is buying a lot of those bonds every month, but not nearly enough to offset the deficit and not nearly enough to offset all of the Treasuries that already exist that the rest of the world wants to unload. Why does the world want to unload their treasuries? Because they have a negative real yield, not just in terms of their coupon, but especially if you adjust the yield for the foreign currency losses, because if you are a foreigner and you're going to buy U.S. treasuries that yield, you know, one to two percent, but the dollar is losing five to 10 percent of its value against your base currency each year. That is a huge loss. Why would you want to ride that down? You wouldn't. So the world is unloading treasury. So you have massive supply and there's no demand outside the Fed. So the Federal Reserve is going to have to pick up the pace. At some point soon, the Fed is going to be forced to announce a major increase in its access purchase program. And when the Fed comes clean, then the market is going to figure out that they've got this wrong. Why they haven't figured it out already is beyond me. I mean, part of the whole reason that rising bond yields are supposed to be bearish for gold is because they're supposed to be bullish for the dollar. The dollar ain't going up. The dollar index is stuck at 90. I mean, it rallied a little bit early this morning with bond yields, but then gradually surrendered those gains. But that's if you just look at like the the euro and the yen, look at other currencies like those that are sensitive to inflation and commodity prices, the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollars were both up today, pretty solid gains, maybe about three quarters of a percent. But more importantly, the US dollar hit a new 52 week low today against both the Australian and the Canadian dollar. So what is that telling you? The dollar is not going up. The dollar is going down and it's going to keep going down because the Fed is going to print even more money because inflation is becoming a problem, not less. Again, The Fed is not going to fight inflation. The Fed is going to keep stoking the inflationary fire until it's burning out of control. Now, let me turn to some comments on the two-day semi-annual testimony where um, basically the Fed chairman goes before Congress 
and tells the congressman exactly what they want to hear and basically BSs everybody about how great everything is. And then the congressmen and women, well, they use this opportunity as a forum to basically uh, score points with their own uh, constituents at home and look good on the camera, you know, as they pretend to care about all the little people, right? Now, of course, the one thing Powell can't be at this hearing is honest, right? Powell can't tell the truth, assuming he knows the truth. He can't admit that the U.S. economy is on life support, right? And the Fed is providing the life support and that if the Fed were to take that away by raising rates or by tapering its bond buying, that the whole the economy would die. That's what would happen. Now, that's actually what we need to happen because it's a zombie economy. This economy has to die so a viable economy could be reborn to replace it. The longer we keep this zombie bubble economy alive, the harder it's going to be to ever resuscitate a legitimate economy. So Powell basically just BSs everybody about how great things are, but how much more work we need to do, right? Because he has to talk about how many people are still unemployed and they're not necessarily being captured in the official unemployment numbers because they're not looking for work and therefore they're not statistically counted as being unemployed. But of course, we know that they would work if they had a job uh, and they should be part of the labor force, but now they're not officially considered in it. And so according to Powell, when you properly adjust the official unemployment rate, the real unemployment rate is over 10%. And so therefore, even though the economy is looking good, it's not looking good for everybody. And therefore, we need to continue with this massive QE and 0% interest rates. But what he's not saying is the parts of the economy that we think are doing well are not. They're a bubble too. And if we take away the QE and the uh, 0% interest rates, then that will collapse as well. So he has to pretend that the reason we're doing the QE is just because this small segment of the economy, leisure, hospitality, uh, transportation, right? The, the part that's been affected by COVID, right? That's the only real weak spot when in reality, the entire thing is weak. That's why the Fed has no choice in its mind but to continue with all the monetary supports until the dollar collapses, which means the supports can no longer prop up anything because you're trying to prop up the economy with nothing. Now, one of the comments I thought was interesting that Powell made yesterday, he acknowledged that it would be nice if the federal government wasn't running these big deficits. And that uh, statement was in response to a question uh, regarding our savings rate and would it be nicer if we had more savings? And Powell, of course, says, yes, it would be great if we had more savings. But then he said it would also be great if the government wasn't doing so much dis-savings, right, by running deficits. Because whatever we manage to save privately is offset by what the government is borrowing publicly, right? So they're dis-saving and they're eating up our savings. So Powell admitted that it would be good if the federal government was not running these big deficits, which of course it would be good. But then he was quick to say, but I don't want them to do anything about it now. Yes, it's a problem that the deficits are big, but I don't want to deal with that problem now. In fact, Powell is encouraging Congress to make that problem worse. He's saying it would be nice if we had smaller deficits, but right now we need even bigger deficits, which of course doesn't even make sense. But what Powell wants is for the government to wait until everything is great and then deal with the deficit problem. But of course, nobody wants to deal with the problem when everything is great because nobody wants to rain on the parade. When everything is great, nobody wants to upset the apple cart. So basically, Congress will never deal with the deficit because they don't want to deal with it when times are bad because after all that's not the time we need bigger deficit when times are bad and when times are good no one wants the good times to end and doing something about the deficit would end the good times so there's never a time to do something about the deficit the only time to do something is when there's a crisis that involves the deficit and then you have to address it which is exactly where we're headed and what is that crisis going to be what form will it take and that's going to be a currency crisis because it won't be a bond crisis because the Fed will prevent it from being a bond crisis by buying all the bonds. 
But where does it get the money to buy all the bonds? It prints it. And that is the problem because eventually all the money they're printing is going to crash. It's the dollar crisis that's going to bring the bond crisis to a head. And only then will the government do something about it. Of course, by then, it's going to be much harder to deal with it. And of course, they're going to claim that, well, nobody could have predicted this. Nobody could have seen this coming. And, you know, they'll blame it all on capitalism. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Then he had a question on bubbles, right? Because he's getting this question, whether or not there's a bubble. Does he see any bubbles? Which, of course, you don't even have to ask. I mean, everything's a bubble, right? I mean, there's bubbles all over the place. But then what Jerome Powell did is he basically channeled Alan Greenspan, right? And what he said was, well, you know, I don't really know if there are any bubbles because he said, you know, nobody can really tell a bubble anyway. It's impossible to know that there's a bubble, right? So I have no idea. I mean, there could be bubbles, but I have no idea because there's no way to tell. That was his cop-out answer that he gave because that's what Alan Greenspan said when he was asked about the bubble uh, in the NASDAQ or, you know, housing. And Greenspan basically said, we can never tell a bubble until after it pops, which of course is a lie. I mean, it's easy to tell a bubble. I think some of the only people that can't recognize bubbles are the people that work at the Federal Reserve. I mean, I was able to identify the NASDAQ bubble without a problem. I mean, the dot-com bubble, I mean, how could you not see that that was a bubble, right? Same thing with residential real estate. Same thing with crypto now. I mean, these are bubbles. But according to what Alan Greenspan said, and now Jerome Powell, nobody can tell there's a bubble until after it pops. And then, oh, then we know in hindsight because it popped, therefore it was a bubble. But we can't tell until after it pops, which is nonsense because the Fed doesn't want to do anything about the bubble. And what Greenspan said is since you can't tell a bubble until after it pops, the best thing is to wait for it to pop and then to come in with monetary policy to deal with the problem except the monetary policy that deals with the bursting of a bubble just inflates an even bigger bubble, which the Fed then denies exists. And that's exactly what Jerome Powell is doing now by denying that all these obvious bubbles don't exist or are impossible to detect. And so why should he even uh, consider it? Then there was another comment that was made by one of the senators. And again, I can't forget which one. In fact, I'm, I'm going to be talking about a lot of these comments and I don't recall the names of the individuals that made them, you know, because, you know, their heads are there, they're in Zoom, and I'm not really even looking up, but I'm listening to the testimony as I'm doing other stuff. So I'm just catching all these uh, statements. So I don't really know, you know, to whom to attribute them. But one of the uh, senators was talking about wealth inequality. So I'm sure it was one of the Democrats, because this is an issue that they really like to hammer. And the point that this senator was making was that the Fed had the tools to address income inequality, which is why they want the Fed to, uh, you know, solve the problem, right? They want the Fed to go after uh, income inequality, especially along racial lines, right? Because they're saying that blacks earn less than whites and women earn less than men, and they want the Fed to do something about it, (laughs) which, of course, there's nothing the Fed could do about it. But here's the irony. These guys think, that it's the Fed that has the tools to solve this problem. When in reality, it's the Fed's tools that are exacerbating the problem. They're not just creating it because the congressmen, the senators themselves, especially the Democrats, with their welfare programs and anti-discrimination laws and minimum wage, they're the ones that are driving uh, income inequality. They're the ones that are uh, making African-Americans earn less than they otherwise would, absent all this intervention. But then the Federal Reserve exacerbates those problems with the tools that they have, which are, in fact, weapons. I don't know if you want to call them tools because they're not building anything. They're destroying stuff. They're, they're bad, right? Tools imply that they're good, 
right? You can do good things with tools, right? Weapons are for destruction. And that's basically what the Fed is doing. They're destroying real wealth and transferring it uh, with all this paper wealth. That's all they could do. The only tools, right, or weapons the Fed has is they can print money. They can create inflation. How is that going to end uh, income inequality? It is not. The way the Fed is doing it, it's simply going to widen the divide. It's going to enrich the haves and further impoverish the have-nots. There's a lot of problems when you're running a small business. One of them is HR issues. Those can kill you. Wrongful termination lawsuits, anti-discrimination, minimum wage requirements, other labor regulations, and an HR manager's salary ain't cheap. They average about 70000 a year or more. Well, that's where Bambi comes in. That's spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created especially for small business owners. You can get a dedicated HR manager. You can craft your HR policy and maintain compliance all for just 99 bucks a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from being your biggest liability to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they'll customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. And it's month-to-month, no long-term contract, no hidden fees. You can cancel anytime you want. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend your time doing HR compliance. That's where Bambi steps in. Let Bambi free you up to spend your time more productively. So go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Now, also one thing that particularly is annoying when you hear everybody talking about the unemployment and how people, you know, can't go back to work because they're sick or they're afraid of getting sick. But nobody wants to acknowledge because everybody is afraid of being attacked, right, for being insensitive or insulting. But no one wants to admit what's obvious. There are a lot of people who are only pretending that they're afraid of getting COVID. They're exploiting an opportunity that was given to them by Congress to earn more money and take a vacation than go back to work. Because the choice that the government is giving a lot of people is you can stay home and collect unemployment benefits that exceed your salary and you can enjoy all this leisure or you can go back to work and take a pay cut and give up all that leisure. You know, your vacation is over. Well, what are you going to choose? Obviously, no sane individual is going to choose going back to work. And yes, there it may be a little bit more dangerous. Maybe your chances of getting COVID are greater if you go back to work than if you stay home. But given the fact that leisure is preferable to work and more money is preferable to less, people are going to stay home. And if they have to make up an excuse that I don't want to catch COVID and that's the reason, then that's what they're going to do. And you know, a lot of these same people who are so afraid to go to work because they might catch COVID, they're not afraid to participate in other social gatherings. They do all sorts of stuff during their leisure. They come into contact with lots of people and they're not worried at all about getting COVID there, but oh, go go and actually do work at my job. Oh no, no, that's too risky, right? I can't, I can't do that. See, nobody wants to admit this truth because nobody wants to be politically incorrect or accuse anybody of taking advantage of these government giveaways when that's exactly what's happening. And again, the same thing is happening with the PPP program. There is nothing but fraud. There are all sorts of companies that technically don't need this money that are getting it. And they are going to rearrange their finances, their affairs to fully exploit these programs and to take advantage of the foolish and get their fair share of the giveaway pie. And a lot of the moral hazard isn't just that people want the money, but they feel like they're getting cheated if they don't take it because they know everybody else is cheating and they're all going to get it. So they're a sucker if they don't do it too. They need to get their fair share of what the government is giving away. Now, moving on to today's testimony, I think this was a Republican congressman who made this point and it was a completely asinine point. Because this guy was saying, and, and maybe he was a Democrat, I don't even know, so just you know, just a congressman. But his point was that he wanted the Fed 
to, to be more active in trying to stimulate the economy because he thought it was free. In fact, he thought it was actually better than free because he pointed out and he thanked Powell for the big check that the Federal Reserve was sending to Congress every year because the Federal Reserve earns interest on its balance sheet, right? All those government bonds that the Fed owns, the U.S. Treasury pays them interest. But the Federal Reserve is obligated to return that interest to the U.S. government. So when private individuals or foreign governments own treasuries and the U.S. Treasury has to pay interest, it doesn't get the money back, right? The creditors keep the interest. But when the government sells a treasury to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve turns around and pays the money right back to the U.S. Treasury. And so it gets this check. And so according to this senator, that meant that the Fed could stimulate um, the economy and it would actually cause the Treasury to get more money. Whereas if the Treasury was going to stimulate directly with fiscal stimulus, then it would have to spend more money. And so the deficits would be bigger. So according to this senator, we have smaller deficits when the Federal Reserve is paying for the stimulus by printing money than when the U.S. government is paying for the stimulus by borrowing money. And of course, completely ridiculous statement because if the Federal Reserve wasn't printing all that money, interest rates would be rising because the printed money is being used to monetize the debt. And if the Fed wasn't printing that money, interest rates would be rising and the U.S. government would be forced to cut government spending to stop rates from rising. Also because higher interest rates would mean a higher cost to service the debt and the government wouldn't have the money and so would therefore have to cut spending to offset the rising burden of servicing its debt. So it's the opposite. It's precisely because the Fed is so accommodative and printing so much money that the deficits are so big. If the Fed refused to monetize the deficits, the deficits would be much smaller. So this senator claiming that it's good if the Fed prints money because that's keeping the deficit smaller, that they would be even bigger if the Fed wasn't there, is nonsense. In fact, if there was no Fed and we had honest money, there'd be no deficits. It's the funny money system that we have now that is responsible for the enormity of the debt and why we believe that we can keep on going deeper and deeper into debt with impunity. Powell was also asked about you know, why he thinks it's important for the Federal Reserve to be independent. And he basically didn't answer the question other than by saying, I believe in independence of the Fed. It's a long tradition. He said it's not in the Constitution, which, of course, it's not because the Federal Reserve is not in the Constitution. We didn't have a Federal Reserve until 1913. But it was created as, an, as a private corporation. That's what it is. That's why it's independent. It wasn't even part of government. And the reason it wasn't part of government is because the government is not authorized by the Constitution to do anything that the Fed is doing. The government can't print money. They don't have that power, but the Federal Reserve can. But of course, the Federal Reserve was printing notes, notes which were acting as currency, which were redeemable in real money, which the U.S. government could coin, which was gold and silver. So the original Federal Reserve notes were promises to pay gold and silver, but they were issued by a private bank. Now those notes have no value because they've been repudiated. You can't get any real money for your Federal Reserve notes, but they were still issued by an independent private company, not by the U.S. government. But practically speaking, the whole act you know, has been compromised and the Fed is no longer independent. But the idea that Powell supports independence is all a bunch of nonsense. That's all superficial. Because the reason that the Fed was independent, apart from the fact that the government has no constitutional authority to do what the Fed was set up to do, but it was so that the Federal Reserve would not be an engine of inflation. So the Federal Reserve would not uh, encourage U.S. government debt by monetizing it, which is why the original Federal Reserve Act made it illegal for the Federal Reserve to even own any U.S. treasuries. They did not want the Fed to lend money to the U.S. government because they didn't want the moral hazard of allowing the U.S. government to borrow from the Fed. So the fact that Powell is so cooperative with the U.S. government and is encouraging the government to go deeper into debt and assuring the government that the Fed will monetize the debt and keep interest rates artificially low, the Fed is not acting independent. The Fed is acting as if it were an arm of the government 
Uh, Powell is acting as if he's part of the Biden administration. So the fact that they want to pretend that they're in favor of an independent Fed, that's all just window dressing. The Fed is not independent at all. And Powell's own actions prove that. What are the comments that Powell made about inflation? Because quite a few congressmen uh, asked Powell if he's worried about inflation. And of course, you know, no matter how many times the question is asked, the answer is always the same. And it's basically no. And one of the points that Powell made today was that, well, what the Fed is worried about is not inflation, but inflation expectations. And as long as those expectations are anchored, then everything is fine. And what he means by that is that people are not starting to expect higher inflation. Well, you know what? They already are. Pretty obvious that inflation expectations are already unanchored. And we're going to drift further and further away from the Fed's 2% target. At what point, though, is the Fed ever going to be concerned that the inflation rate is too high above its target? And my answer is going to be never. I mean, it may be concerned privately, but it will never acknowledge its concern publicly. And it will never do anything about it until there's a crisis. Because if it does something about it before there's a crisis, they'll cause the crisis. And no central banker or no politician wants to cause a crisis prematurely. They'd rather wait for the crisis to happen because hopefully it'll happen on somebody else's watch. And if it does happen, they can blame the free market. If they cause the crisis by acting preemptively, then they're going to get blamed. Even if that action ultimately mitigates the damage, they don't care. They just don't want to get blamed for the problem, even if their delay makes it much worse. But one of the most ridiculous things that Powell said, which really was an outright lie, because I can't believe that Powell believes this, but he was asked by one of the uh, congressmen, I think this was a Republican, about whether or not the Fed was distorting the markets and what would happen if the Fed was not there, if the Fed was not buying all these bonds, wouldn't interest rates be a lot higher? And he's concerned that our deficits are too big and there may not be enough demand out there uh, in the market to uh, buy these bonds. And of course, everything this guy was saying was 100% accurate. This is like the one guy that actually had some decent uh, points to be made to Powell about the dangers of the current monetary uh, policy. And Basically, what Powell said to try to dismiss this guy's concerns were outright lies. What Powell said was that there is no sign that there is any uh, shortage of demand, right? This congressman said that the Fed was kind of bridging the gap between private sector demand for treasuries and the supply of treasuries that were hitting the market based on the huge deficits. And this guy said, no, that's not true. Powell said there is no evidence that there is any decrease in demand for U.S. Treasuries. And what Powell said is even if the Federal Reserve was not buying any Treasuries, if it completely stopped its QE right now, that it wouldn't have any effect on the bond market, that there would be plenty of private demand to fill the void, which makes absolutely no sense. Powell is saying that the Fed's intervention in the bond market is having no effect on interest rates, that the market doesn't need the Fed, that even if the Fed backed away, there would be other buying that would come in and rates wouldn't go up because he didn't say, well, if the Fed stopped buying, well, rates would rise until private money was attracted. He basically said that rates are, are going to stay the same, that the Fed is having no impact on rates, that there's all this demand and I guess they're just letting the Fed buy. But if the Fed wasn't there, everybody would be lining up to gobble up these low yielding U.S. Treasuries, which is asinine. But the proof that Powell is lying is the fact that the Fed is doing QE in the first place. How could you claim that your QE program has no effect on interest rates, that interest rates would be just as low if the Fed wasn't buying any bonds? Because if that were true, then what's the point of doing QE in the first place? If there's all this private sector demand for these low-yielding bonds, then why does the Fed have to do a QE program in the first place? The only reason that QE is necessary is because without the Fed, interest rates would be soaring because there's not enough demand. And the only reason they're not soaring is because of the Fed. That's why he's lying. He doesn't want to admit this, but everybody should be able to figure it out. I mean, it's not rocket science. Why am I one of the only people that can? Why do you have so many otherwise intelligent people who can't see something that's so obvious? And again, the answer is 
uh, they probably have a vested interest in not seeing it because that's how they make their living. And there was another great question, too, or, or point. I think it might have been the same congressman about um, the fact that the Fed was debasing the dollar, right? Destroying the dollar, printing too many dollars. And Powell came back and said, no, 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 that's not happening. And so what he said was once upon a time in ancient history, uh, the supply of money did have some effect on the value of the dollar, meaning if money supply was really growing, uh, the dollar would lose value. But he said that's not the case anymore. He said there's no longer a relationship between the quantity of money and the value of money, meaning we can print as much money as we want and the money itself is not going to lose value, which is ridiculous. I mean, so according to Powell, the law of supply and demand no longer applies, right? We can supply as many dollars as we want and the price of the dollar is not going to fall. I mean, that is absurd on its face. Meanwhile, prices are going up. I mean, how can he not see that? And the dollar is going down. Now, has the dollar crashed yet? No, not yet. Now, I agree with Powell to an extent that we have been able to get away with printing a lot of money in recent years, and that printed money has not caused an even bigger increase in prices or an even bigger drop of the dollar because of the incorrect perception of the dollar as a safe haven because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And so we've been given a lot of slack. And so you have a lot of people around the world who have loaded up on dollars. And because the Fed was successful in conning all these dollar holders that the short-term uh, 0% interest rates and the bloated balance sheet were temporary, that the Fed was gonna normalize interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. And that is what enabled uh, the Fed to keep on printing money without the value of that money collapsing because our creditors were willing to hold on to that money because they were anticipating this rate normalization, which was going to be bullish for the dollar. Well, when they realize they're waiting for Godot and they don't want to wait anymore, they're going to dump the dollar. And that's exactly what the technical picture is showing you right now. We are very, very close to the dollar basically going over the edge of a cliff. But the point is, though, that you've got the Fed, right, basically in charge of the printing press, believing, unless they're just lying, that they can inflate the money supply all they want and it's never going to result in inflation, which of course is sheer nonsense because they are creating the inflation. The only thing that's happened is we've been spared the consequences, but they haven't been eliminated. They've just been delayed, but because they were delayed, they've been exacerbated. And so the Fed sowed the wind and now we're going to reap the whirlwind. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking about my continuing Elon Musk Twitter war, although it's not that much of a war, but Elon Musk did reply to another one of my tweets, right? He didn't reply to all of my replies that I discussed on the last podcast where he tried to claim that money was just data and a bunch of nonsense. And so I really challenged him. And I made some very, very good points, which I believe are irrefutable. And so rather than attempting to refute them, he just completely ignored it as he did my invitation to discuss uh, our differences on Clubhouse. He replied to a totally separate tweet that I sent out on February 22nd, which I believe was a Friday, which was on Monday afternoon. And I was commenting on the big drop in Tesla shares. And so I'll just read the tweet that caught Elon Musk's attention. Two weeks after Elon Musk announced that he spent 1.5 billion of shareholder money buying Bitcoin, Tesla stock entered a bear market, plunging 20% from its all-time high set on January 25th and 16% since disclosing the Bitcoin buy. Not an example that other CEOs would likely follow. And by the way, Bitcoin continued its correction the following day. It actually broke back just below 45,000, which was about a 23% drop in the price of Bitcoin in a couple of days. Again, proving that all these claims that Bitcoin volatility is going down as the price is going up are false. Volatility has not gone away. It's as volatile now at 50,000 as it was at 5,000. As I'm talking right now, we're around 48,000 and change. Uh, so we're back below this $50,000 level, but still uh, very much up on the year. 
Uh, but Tesla entered a bear market. And in fact, yesterday morning, that bear market extended. Tesla's shares early on were down another 9%, bringing the total drop in Tesla stock to 30%. And about 27% of that, or almost all of it, 90% of the decline occurred after uh, Tesla announced the Bitcoin buy. Now, as we're speaking, you know, the price recovered. It recovered quite a bit yesterday and then was up about 5% today. So now it's out of the bear market territory. I think it's only down about 17% or so from its peak. But at the time of the tweet, it had just entered a bear market. It closed down almost exactly 20% uh, from its high. Oh, and by the way, you know, one of the reasons that Bitcoin bounced off the lows is Square came out and announced that it had purchased another $170 million worth of Bitcoin, right? This is in addition to the 50 million that it had initially purchased. So now it says it's got about 5% of its cash in Bitcoin. So the fact that Square, run by Jack Dorsey of Twitter, had bought even more Bitcoin caused the price to go up. But remember, those Bitcoin were already bought. And that's probably one of the reasons that the price was going up was because Square was buying. But what a lot of people weren't noticing was the earnings that came out from Square today where the earnings were below what analysts were expecting, including their earnings related to cryptocurrency. So there wasn't as much crypto-related transactions going on as investors thought. So with all this supposed new adoption, why didn't Square uh, have better than expected earnings related to crypto transactions? Why did its crypto earnings disappoint? Square shares were down 7.5% on the day. But getting back to the Elon Musk tweet, so he replied to this tweet at about, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the morning, New York time. So maybe, you know, late at night, his time, if he's out in California. But about 2 a.m., I think, New York time or something like that. So 3 a.m. Puerto Rico time. I'm fast asleep when he replies to this tweet. But all he did in his reply was put an emoji of an eggplant. And then that was his reply. I mean, that's it. An eggplant. No words, just one picture. You know, sometimes they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In this case, it was worth like two million views because that's how much engagement this tweet had. In fact, 144,000 people liked the tweet. I mean, what do you like about a purple eggplant? There were 4,500 comments and 12,500 retweets of this eggplant. Now, my original tweet, of course, once Elon Musk put this tweet up on his Twitter feed, it got some extra attention. So I have 24,500 likes on my tweet, uh, even on his page. And I had 4.2,000 comments and uh, 2,300 um, retweets. And in fact, looks like I got... 8.7 million impressions on my tweet. So that's not bad. So I don't know. I said Musk got 2 million. He must have got more. If I got 8.7 million, he must have got even more than that. So I don't know why. I thought I had heard 2 million on the television, but that, that's got to be that's got to be wrong. It's got to be much more based on what I'm looking at on my own engagement on my original tweet because he had so much more action on his tweet. Although as a percentage of his followers, uh, you know, he's got almost 48 million followers. Right, and I have just under 400,000. In fact, I've jumped up quite a bit. I think he's helped give me an extra 20,000 followers, I think, over the past few days. I'm almost at uh, 400,000. Although I read an article, somebody was making fun of me, and they said that Elon Musk had um, 10,000 times the number of followers that I do, which he doesn't have 10,000 times as many followers. He has 100 times as many followers. Still, he's got a lot more followers than I do. Uh, but not not 10,000 times as many. But, you know, a lot of these Bitcoin guys, they have a big problem with math and they also have a big problem with the truth. In fact, there was another guy that was on Alex Jones. I don't like to mention this guy because I don't like to give him publicity, but he was claiming that I was on CNBC last week, you know, crediting him for uh, telling me to buy Bitcoin when it was $10, which he never did. But to say that I said it on CNBC last week, I wasn't on CNBC last week. I haven't been on CNBC in years. In fact, I really got a kick out of all these reports. CNBC was covering all the tweets uh, from Elon Musk. In fact, they ended up blaming the Bitcoin sell-off 
on his tweet that the price seemed high, but CNBC was one of the only news outlets, news in quotes, because it's really just a big infomercial for Bitcoin, but they didn't want to mention that the, that the tweet was in reply to me. So they had to just talk about the tweet. In fact, I was watching one story where they talked about the fact that the tweet was sent out at two in the morning. And they're like, oh my, why did he tweet at two in the morning? Well, because he was tweeting at me. The whole thing was, was meant for me, but they can't admit that because not only won't CNBC have me on and not only won't they allow anybody to say that my name, but they don't even want to acknowledge my existence. So I got a kick out of them having to dance around the real story because they had to only tell a half story because if they told the full story, it would involve me. But of course, the full story is a lot more interesting. I did get to talk about it on Fox Business. In fact, I was on Liz Clayman's show uh, yesterday and I put uh, that up on my uh, YouTube channel so you can check that out. And Liz showed the Musk tweet and my tweet and all that. And even Barron's I read on there and Bloomberg, they all acknowledged that uh, Musk was tweeting to me, replying to me, but CNBC had to make sure that no one on the network acknowledged that Musk was having a conversation with me. But, you know, the question is, you know, what specifically did Elon Musk mean by tweeting me the emoji of an eggplant? I mean, obviously, if you look at it, it's a very phallic looking fruit. Uh, so maybe he's telling me to stick it or suck it or something like that, or he's just calling me, you know, a dick or whatever he's doing. But clearly, I mean, he's he's resorted to kind of a playground mentality, right? You know, your mama, right? I basically said something about his company's stock being in a bear market. And that's the best he could do is, you know, coming back with an insult, which is not what I really expected from somebody of Musk's intellect. But, you know, that's what he did. Anyway, you, I, I replied to that reply. Of course, Musk has not replied to that yet. But I said, I, I'm assuming that based on the fact that you've now resorted to insulting me, that you don't want to do the uh, clubhouse conversation. So probably not going to happen, but you never know. I mean, maybe he'll have a change of heart. But that particular tweet didn't get nearly as much press as the earlier one in which Musk admitted that he thought the price of Bitcoin and Ether seemed high. But in my opinion, that is a more relevant story because I made a valid point. I was basically raising the possibility that Tesla shareholders are not exactly happy about Tesla's decision to gamble on Bitcoin because if they're voting with their feet, they are selling their stock. And so I pointed this out. And what was his reaction to me? You know, he just insulted me. Now, you know, I'm not a Tesla shareholder. Maybe uh, Musk just assumes that I'm not a shareholder. But what if I was? I mean, what if other Tesla shareholders have the same problem? What if they don't like Tesla gambling on Bitcoin and they want to ask Elon Musk a question about it or point out the fact that so far this has not been a positive development for the company. Is his reaction going to be the same thing? You know, send them an eggplant? You know, by the way, I mean, now I'm getting all kinds of emails uh, with eggplants. I mean, people, you know, go to my Twitter feed. A lot of times I tweet out and people are all replying with eggplants. They don't even bother to put words in there. In fact, I started to kind of make fun of the people that are giving me eggplants for most of yesterday, I uh, altered my own Twitter bio and I put an eggplant in between my name. So I was Peter Eggplant Chef. And I also thought it was funny because if he's calling me the D word uh, and uh, my middle name is D anyway, uh, David. So I'm Peter D. Schiff. Well, you know, I just figure I'm Peter Eggplant Chef or, you know, whatever. And I put that where Eggplant was my middle name just to kind of make fun, not only of Musk, but of all the people that were sending me eggplants. And by the way, now there's all sorts of memes out there and other images uh, regarding me and an eggplant. So it's, you know, he's set off a whole uh, thing about it. But the real story was the way Musk chose to deal with a legitimate criticism about how quickly Tesla fell into a bear market following the announcement that he had bought Bitcoin even though the Bitcoin that he bought had appreciated in value. And there are a lot of people that are trying to point out how Tesla has made more money on its Bitcoin purchase than on selling cars, which may actually be calling attention to the fact that they're not making a lot of money selling cars, that they're making more money buying Bitcoin. But of course, they haven't actually made any money buying Bitcoin because they haven't sold. 
anybody can buy. Let's see you try to sell it, especially when you're talking about 1.5 billion into Bitcoin. That's another thing entirely getting 1.5 billion out. But also, I was thinking about another reason that Musk may have ventured into Bitcoin. It may have been a distraction. I mean, maybe there are some problems at Tesla, bigger problems with their products and their earnings. They got some problems in China that Musk would rather not deal with. So by getting into Bitcoin, it takes people's attention off of some of the problems and has them focus on Bitcoin. I think that's exactly what happened with Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy. I mean, I think that stock was probably having problems as a company. And so kind of to change the conversation, he decided to turn the company into a Bitcoin ETF so he wouldn't have to deal with it. And in fact, now that the company is a Bitcoin ETF, the price has skyrocketed, although it's down quite a bit from its highs. It's almost dropped 50%. You know, it was at 1315 a share, and today it's at 817 which was a 14% gain on the day. Yesterday, the stock was down like 23%. Now, it's still way above where it started this run. The stock's got a 52-week low of 90 and so at 817 it's almost 10 times the 52-week low. So it's had a huge a ride on the Bitcoin train. But ultimately, it's going to come crashing down even faster. But, you know, I think what happened, too, is Michael Saylor took advantage of this run-up in his stock. I think he's been selling uh, shares. I'm not really sure what percentage of his overall uh, holdings have been sold. But he basically got the company to buy Bitcoin and by buying a bunch of Bitcoin, the price of the stock went up and then he didn't sell any Bitcoin. He just sold his shares, which was a way to pump and dump his stock by pumping it up with a bunch of overpriced Bitcoin and then taking advantage of the mania, not by selling any Bitcoin, but by selling his shares that basically rose temporarily uh, as a function of the decision to buy Bitcoin. And matter of fact, I had agreed to debate Michael Saylor uh, on, on friendly turf. The guy that was going to moderate the debate was pro-Bitcoin. So I was willing to do that, but Michael Saylor was not. He refused this invitation. The guy really wanted to make it happen. I had already agreed, uh, and he uh, decided that he didn't want to do it. And uh, I mean, I don't blame him. I mean, why would he want to debate me? I mean, he's going to lose. He's going to look foolish trying to say all this nonsense. I mean, I saw him go on CNBC the other day. He was being interviewed by Joe Kernan, who is, uh, you know, a Bitcoin bull. You look on his uh, uh, on image, he's got the laser beam eyes. And, you know, I like Joe. I mean, he's a nice guy. We've we've got a lot of things in common. Um, but I mean, he is so drunk on the the Bitcoin Kool-Aid that he is letting Sailor say all kinds of crazy things. I mean, crazy. I mean, this guy was saying that not only was Bitcoin going to flip gold and take all of gold's market share and basically make gold worthless, right? But it was going to take all the sovereign debt markets, that Bitcoin was going to, going, to, going to have the value of all the gold and all the sovereign bonds, and that everybody was just going to own Bitcoin and nothing else, and that just the price was going to go, I don't know, to a million, and like it couldn't go down. I mean, it was just crazy stuff that, I mean, if I came on there and tried to say anything one one hundredth that crazy about gold or anything else, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me do it. They would be yelling at me or talking about my, my objectivity. And again, you know, I read all these reports too. I was, a lot of these articles were written uh, about the, the Elon Musk tweets about how Peter Schiff is this renowned Bitcoin critic. I'm a Bitcoin critic, you know, and, and everybody, because it's, it's a lot of Bitcoin related publications that are reporting on the exchange between uh, Musk and myself. And they all point out that I sell gold. And therefore, I'm biased against Bitcoin. I mean, nobody can talk about or write about my uh, opposition to Bitcoin without mentioning that I'm biased because I sell gold. Meanwhile, they never mention the bias of everybody who is pro-Bitcoin, especially when 100% of their livelihood depends on Bitcoin, right? They run a Bitcoin fund or a crypto fund or a business that's tied to Bitcoin. They've got their whole net worth in Bitcoin, and somehow they're not biased. But me, I make a small percentage of my income uh, uh, selling gold. 
right? Maybe not even 10% of my income I make selling gold. It's a side business. My main business is asset management. And if I wanted to manage Bitcoin, I can manage that, right? There's nothing that's stopping me from launching a Bitcoin fund. In fact, if I wanted to be pro-Bitcoin and launch a Bitcoin fund, I could raise as much money as anybody else, right? So I'm not the one that's biased. The ones that are biased are the ones that are pro-Bitcoin and betting their whole life on Bitcoin. And of course, when you own Bitcoin, you have to come out and tell everybody how great it is because you need more buyers. You have to sucker more people into the scheme. You need constant inflow of buyers. So there's where the bias is. And by the way, I have been watching the shares of the Grayscale Trust recently, and they have been constantly trading at a slight discount to their net asset value. Now, part of that is because the Canadians have launched a Bitcoin ETF, so now they've got some competition. Why pay a big premium when you can buy an ETF? And by the way, the management fees on that ETF are lower than the fees that you would pay Grayscale. So I think the gravy train is over for Grayscale. They're not gonna be getting a lot of new inflows uh, with which to buy up Bitcoin in the open market. And Grayscale has been the biggest buyer of Bitcoin, and now they're not going to buy anymore. So the question is, who is going to pick up the slack and buy all the Bitcoin that Grayscale is no longer buying? And if there's nobody there, well, then the price is going to crash. And yes, maybe Square has bought some, and maybe uh, Tesla has bought some, and MicroStrategies. Everybody thinks there's a whole bunch of companies queuing up to do the same thing well, I don't think so, you know, especially if Tesla enters a bear market so quickly after its decision to buy Bitcoin, why would other corporate CEOs want to make the same decision when they can already see what the results have been?